Hello, all you reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am the founder of Covey Club and also of this podcast. And I have somebody really special for you today. When you look at reinventions, sometimes they're big and sometimes they're small. Sometimes people go from corporate life to a version of that similar kind of topic in their entrepreneurial life or you know, it's uh, they're in consulting in the same silo that they were in. Jennifer Turbo, who you're going to meet, has crossed over, like jumped a silo. She's like one of those video games that just literally leapt across um, all kinds of boundaries to figure out what she wanted to do. And she did it. And that's the amazing thing. Um, she went from being, you're never going to believe this, a technical writer for engineers and engineering and software to being a comedian, a stand-up comedian. And she did it literally by one step at a time. She just pushed herself out there and decided to figure out, she examined the local stand-up community and just started going to open mic nights and after six months as she'll explain she actually started getting paid so this is not for everybody but there are many many people who say i in later life would like to leave my corporate kind of thing or my more cerebral kind of thing and i would like to get into more of the creative arts can i do this i am over the age of 40 how do i do this i'm too old i'm too this i'm too that and jennifer is here to tell you you are not too old um in fact using your knowledge and your history may actually give you a leap forward and help create your own niche that is quite unique and will bring you your own audience that other people aren't doing and it's especially true um, when you're up there competing against the 20 year olds, as she says, they're all doing dating, dating jokes and she's doing something else, which is totally different and has its own audience, which is fantastic. So of course it's not without trials and tribulations and making mistakes, but I think you're really going to enjoy listening to Jen and how she made this fantastic leap into something she loves. She's really funny. I hope you will follow her on Instagram. And she's kind enough to say that she's happy to talk to anybody who's trying to make that kind of similar list uh, if you DM her. So let's just welcome Jennifer Turbo. Jen, I'm so glad to have you. I'm such a big fan of your reinvention. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start with what the heck you used to do, because it is such a crazy reinvention that I just love it. <laughs> talk about talk about what you did in the past and give me a little bit of history. Um, you know, you you were a technical writer. Yep. Were you were your parents writers? Like, how did you even get into that? So I'm oh, my gosh, how far back should I go? Well, I my... want to kind of know the threads because yeah. people can see they can see connections in threads, you know. Um, my parents were much older when they had me they already mm -hmm. had four teenagers um so i was a surprise ah okay uh, my mom was in her 40s my dad was almost 50 
and all of my older siblings were, I think my oldest brother was 20, 20, mm -hmm. 17, 15, and 12, I think. Wow. Um, so then, so they, uh, my parents were a much different generation than me. And even my older siblings were a different generation than me. Wow. Okay. Um, so I went to, you know, a regular high school in a regular suburb. My dad was a uh, professor of mechanical agricultural engineering. Uh -huh. So an engineer is a very structured black and white kind of mindset. Yes. My mom, um, she had a master's degree in nutrition, but because of her age, her goal was to be a housewife. So she didn't uh -huh. really have, you know, uh, professional ambitions. Um, so my parents in their, you know, dated wisdom, they just told me, go to university and get a degree in literally anything so you can get a good job. You know, that doesn't work anymore, but right. <laughs> I didn't know I was a teenager. So I got some business degree to get some business job and I hated it. But in college, I started working for the student newspaper and I loved it, but the college I was at did not have a journalism school. So I just pushed through my business degree, which I despised, um, but I had enough writing samples that I applied for an editorial internship at a magazine in New York and I got it. So I spent a, um, a summer in New York. What and, magazine uh, was that? It was Spin Magazine. Spin, Spin okay. Magazine? Yes. That was a big yes. deal. It was a big deal and it was super fun. And I fell in love with New York and I actually didn't want to go back and finish my degree. And the people that I worked with, they talked me into it. They said, it's a very different world for people who have a degree versus people who yes. don't have a degree. Just go Correct. back, finish your last year, get your degree. So I got my degree in something I didn't like and I wanted to pursue writing, which is what I did like. Um, my mom would write speeches and reports for my dad, but, um, and my dad was very technical. I grew up on a farm. Um, so I learned mechanical stuff and welding. Um, I wouldn't say I was good at it. I certainly didn't have engineering ambitions. Both my older brothers are engineers. And again, they're very black and white mindset, which is not how I'm wired. Right. Um, so in New York, I met a lot of creative people. I ended up meeting the guy that I married and we're still married. Uh, this will be our 20th year the, um, awesome. coming up. And he's an artist. Uh, so I kind of fell into, I liked writing, but I didn't have any of the, you know, real contacts in writing. And I went to um, the back of the New York Times when they used to advertise jobs, you know, way yes. back before, oh my before God. LinkedIn, before Google. <laughs> We're right. talking oh my 1997. God. This is and Pleistocene I saw, era. Yeah. I saw that there were technical writing jobs that paid $80,000. Oh, and to uh, me back then, 80 right. grand was a lot of money. I current at that time, I was making 25,000 and barely mm -hmm. scratching by. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't know what technical writing was. So <laughs> I, and there was no Google. It's not like you could look right. it up. So right. I actually uh, applied to these places and went to the interviews in order to ask questions. <laughs> and do some recon and so when they were asking questions of me um i was basically uh 
remembering those questions to apply like this must be what the job is like so after going to three or four of those interviews with that i had no business going to um i figured out what the job is enough that i applied to a place that had a little overlap in you know my um what i was able to do and i got hired um doing documenting software implementations and basically i had to be the liaison between the nerds programming the software and the nerds who would use the software and make <laughs> oh. sure that there was you know a clear path of what they were getting and what they wanted and right. then i would make uh training on how they needed to use the very specific piece of the software and i love doing that and so that took me uh 15 years of doing that traveling all over the country um uh doing software implementations of big companies and then i had my two kids and um i was freelancing this whole time which was excellent um i managed to escape the soul-sucking corporate culture, you uh -huh. know, that a lot of people that crushes a lot of people. Yeah, so I was able to observe a lot of different corporate cultures without being beholden to them. Right. So um, uh, I took a break, had some kids. And then after my son was born, I had my daughter two years later, I had my son. I was shocked that I missed being in a professional environment like I was itching to do a PowerPoint or a spreadsheet or have a conference call or basically have professional interactions and not just diapers and naps and snacks. Um, so I started a LinkedIn profile and recruiters started, um, you know, hitting me up for potential jobs that I learned were not close by. They'd say the New York area, but it was, you know, in Poughkeepsie, which is, you know, two hour drive each way. Um, and then one guy asked, uh, contacted me and said, um, this looks like it would be a good fit for you. If you want more details, call me and left his phone number. And that was unusual. So I called him and he, uh, he told me, you know, the jobs that are, uh, in a nice clean area with nice carpeting and it's quiet and it's polite <laughs> and i said yeah and he goes this is the opposite of that <laughs> at went, least he was honest i know and i said so tell me what it is and he goes okay it's uh it's in a maintenance shop it's loud it's dirty it's mostly men and it's a lot of swearing and i went it sounds awesome <laughs> okay and it was eight miles from where i lived so okay. it was truly like a good you know a decent commute so uh i went and met him and it was uh instead of software documentation it was documenting maintenance on um locomotives and commuter rail and subways and I'm like, I can't do this. I'm not an engineer. I don't know any of this. And he goes, it's perfect because I need you to read the engineering documents and then translate it to the shop guys because the shop guys don't read the manuals. They just don't. If they were good at reading, they wouldn't be you know, using hand tools generally. Um, so if I can understand or parcel out what these engineers are trying to convey, then I can put it into shop talk 
and make a training program or uh, uh, write um, collateral that the, you know, like a quick reference guide that these shop guys can use. And a big part of my job was to make nice with these guys. So I would go down there and they'd be like, who the hell is this skinny woman in a hard hat with a clipboard? And I would just, you know, get to know them, earn their trust, figure out what they're doing, make notes, and then um, supply them with better information so they can do their job more effectively or quickly or whatever. So um, I loved it. I loved the shop environment. I loved the blue collar guys. I loved that it was, you know, a rough and tumble environment. I didn't mind getting dirty. I grew up on a farm. I didn't mind the, the noise. You were the only woman, right? There were a handful of women, some okay. of the shop women, you know, were, you know, what you would expect, Butchie, uh, whom I adored, and they uh, grew to like me. And there were also some women um, on the sales and supply end. There was one woman that I worked with. Her name was Mary-Eve Renaud Poirier, and she was a French Canadian. And she Ooh. was, God, she was maybe 10 years my junior. And she was a little hot tamale, um, but she was great. I loved her um, and she knew she was very technically inclined. And so the guys uh, respected her, but it was an interesting mix. And this was at New Jersey Transit. So oh my you know, God, like incredible. Straight out of the Sopranos. It really is. But it was fun. And I did that for uh, from 2009 until... I moved to New Orleans in 2018. And it paid a good salary for you. It paid great. And there was almost, uh, it paid really well. And there was almost no competition um, because it was such a niche. And mm -hmm. uh, the people that I've ever worked with, I've always had a good relationship with them. And then when they got onto some kind of a similar project, they would reach out to me to see if I wanted to participate. So That's I was amazing. never at a loss for work. If anything, I would turn down work if it was, you know, if it, the timing wasn't right or uh, the location was too inconvenient or, you know, stuff like that. So I enjoyed my work. Um, but during the pandemic, and I traveled a lot, I would go to New York, I'd go to New Jersey. Um, when I was doing software, I went to California, Ohio, um, Minneapolis, um, Missouri, uh, uh, Florida. And this is all looking at, at trains? The, the, the bulk of the travel was doing software implementations. Okay. For trains, it was New York you know, New York City subway, uh, Metro, um, Long Island Railroad, uh, New Jersey Transit, uh, San Diego Transit, uh, some stuff in Toronto. Um, so I did a lot of traveling. Mm -hmm. And then when the pandemic hit, as we all know, all the traveling stopped. Um, but some of the, a lot of the transit agencies that I worked with, suddenly they needed um, COVID cleaning. Mm -hmm. um, protocol written so oh, they all okay. you know okay. a lot of people were unemployed during the lockdown right and i was overemployed i had so much work it was exhausting i mean i was grateful because right. you know, i know a lot of people were put in a difficult financial situation especially being a freelancer but right. i made more money that year than 
in wow. a long time and I was exhausted and I was burned out. And when I moved, I've always liked comedy. You know, I found it relaxing. I found it intriguing. Um, and when I moved to, I, I, I tried to get into it in New York, but it's not a beginner's market in New York. Right. I have, you know, comedian friends who, you know, do the comedy seller. Um, they're on TV. Um, I never wanted to bother them, but I was, you know, I was a big supporter of them. So when I moved to New Orleans, I saw that they had an amateur comedy scene, but um, having moved in 2018, I was traveling back to New York for work a lot. So I had a hard time uh, finding a launching point to join the scene. Um, so what, when lockdown happened. Can, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say what made you, I mean, I have friends who are in comedy. I have, but I'm not thinking I can do this. What made you, were you always funny? Did people know you were funny? Did that happen in school? I mean, how did you get to let me actually try this instead of just hang out with these people? So comedy was a way to um, make a connection with a lot of people. I, you know, when I would do a new project somewhere in the country, um, you'd have new people on the project, new clients. And I found that being funny was a successful way to break the ice and get people to put down their guard and be real with you. Uh -huh. And that worked during the software implementation part of my um, part of my life. It sure worked with the shop guys, you know, like uh, the shop floor environment is a lot of guys, you know, making off color jokes. Right. And that's my wheelhouse. I love inappropriate humor. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I grew up with two older brothers, um, you know, like it's just something that resonates with me. And I put so much effort into filtering myself, you know, like making yes. sure I don't say what's running through my mind, that right. being in a shop environment, I found it very liberating that someone would run their mouth and I could rebuttal with something, you know, okay. equal. Um, and I think I always wanted to try it like on a stage in a legit environment, but I really didn't know how to enter. So I would okay. follow uh, uh, comedians, local comedians in New Orleans on like Twitter. Right. Um, and they'd say that they're doing an open mic at this bar or what have you. And then lockdown happened. And then around, oh, it was actually December 2nd of 2020 on Twitter, I saw one of these open mics. They said, hey, we're, we're starting up again tonight. So come on out. And I told my husband, I said, I want to do this. And I don't know why, but I was really nervous to admit to him that uh -huh. this was some kind of dream I had because he knew I was like sarcastic. He knew that I was uh, extroverted, but I don't know that he knew that I wanted to be on stage with a spotlight. Um, mm -hmm. And I was kind of nervous to uh, admit that to him. Mm -hmm. And I must say that December 2nd of 2020 was one of the coldest days in New Orleans. It mm -hmm. was freezing and it was an outdoor venue because of COVID. Right. <laughs> so he said, okay, so we went. Um, there were maybe 40 comics. I didn't know anybody, but I signed up. Um, I think we got four or five minutes on the stage. That's a it, lot. 
when you're just starting out. And I did not know what I was doing. I didn't have a set. I oh, didn't, you didn't have. You didn't have a whole written out practice. No, I did not. I just, just thought I'd go up? and wing it, just oh like what God. I do on a shop floor or when I meet a bunch of people or if I'm okay. at a party. So I had sort of topics I wanted to hit. So I get on the stage. It's a it's it was at the broadside, so it's an outdoor venue that may be for 200 people, and there were 40 comics and nobody but comics, and it oh. was pitch black with a big spotlight, so you couldn't see anything, mm -hmm. and it was freezing cold, and I don't know that I've ever held a microphone before, uh -huh. so it was all very new, and having not prepared a set, I just started like running my mouth, and I knew <laughs> I was in trouble. It was making no sense. It was going nowhere. I couldn't hear a response. And so I'm like, this is not good. But at the same time, it felt uh, invigorating. It wow. felt exciting. And it felt like something that I wanted to do and I wanted to do properly. So I wanted to learn how to master this. And so I got off the stage and I knew I sucked. I knew that it was bad. <laughs> but to be honest, nobody was great because everyone was out of practice. And uh -huh. some guy came up to me and said, hey, I have an open mic on Saturday. Will you come? And it was in my neighborhood. And I was thrilled that someone wanted to talk to me after that dumpster fire that I put on stage. <laughs> so yeah. I started going to his mic every Saturday. It was in the backyard of a bar that he worked at. And I started taking it seriously. And I started, you know, crafting a set. I think his was three or four minutes of stage time. So I started figuring out what I want to say, how I want to say it, the words I'm going to use, the transitions I'm going to use, you know. And I just started doing it weekly and um, every week for a year. Well, I would say every week until uh, February, other open mics started opening up and I started getting invited to them. So then I was doing an open mic twice a week and then three times a week and then four times a week. And then it got to where I was doing it every night. And my poor husband <laughs> said, because he would go with me and he would video my set so that I could oh, learn see. Uh -huh. what I'm doing right, what I could uh -huh. do better. Sometimes I didn't even know when I felt uh, stuck. Oh, and we were doing sets with masks on. So they were outside oh with God. a mask, which I found oh. comforting because uh -huh. it's just less you need to control. So it's just people see your eyes and not wow. what's happening with your mouth. But I noticed that when I would feel a little panic, I would yawn which is oh, such a weird thing to do. And I would see it in the video and I'd be like, I need to stop doing that because you can see I'm yawning through my mask. And it That's was hilarious. weird. I didn't know I had this reflex. So, um, and I'd also noticed that I would do a lot of pointing my finger, okay. like I'm lecturing. And oh, that okay. did not look funny or good. Like it seemed okay. to like not resonate well with the audience. So I trained good. myself to not do that. Um, so my poor husband, after I, this might be around May, April, May of going to an open mic every single night, he goes, that's unbelievable. Are we going to keep doing this every night? 
And I'm like, you know what? Some of these I don't really like, like the energy isn't right. You know, I, the host isn't very, some hosts are more supportive than others. So I started right. weaning back, you know, some of the less supportive hosts, some right. of the, you know, um, where you, if there were 40 comics and you weren't there an hour before, you'd be waiting two and a half hours before you got oh your three minutes God. of stage time. Wow. So I started whittling back, just doing the mics that would give me more time, mics that had more supportive uh, hosts, mics that I liked the other uh, regular comics so that I could build some camaraderie. Um, and then I started getting invited to paid um, shows and uh, I was shocked. I really couldn't believe that I'm so new and I'm getting invited to do a paid gig to open for a professional traveling comedian. And so I'm like, I guess I'm doing something right. How long did that take? My first paid gig was, I want to say June. So, so from December to June is six, six seven months. months. That's all. Yeah. But you were yeah. doing it every night. You were out yeah. there. And I would work on it. I would like, you know, I do my real work, but then I would like just dying to write the next joke or uh, craft something or make a better transition or take another one of my, you know, mediocre jokes to the next level or make a callback, you know, where you start with a joke and then you end referencing to your first joke. So I started, you know, like learning the techniques of what I thought other people were doing that was funny or clever or successful. Um, and I would just really work on it. And um, I guess it got noticed. <laughs> did you take any classes? Did you no. study online? Mm-hmm. Did you how did you, no, no, you just learned no. by doing? I learned by doing, I mean, I was always a fan of comedy. So I'd watch, you know, professional comedians. Um, but once I got into it, I was able to uh, like deconstruct what they're doing, uh-huh. you know, like instead of just enjoying the ride, I would actually You're starting to see the technique. Yes. Yes. Okay. Like, a, okay. like a postmortem of what are they? Oh, I see what they're doing there. I bet this is a setup for a callback, I see. you I know? See. Um, and so uh-huh. that was, and different techniques of different um, comedians that I enjoyed. I started categorizing them. There's storytellers, there's straight up joke tellers, there's a hybrid, you know, uh-huh. there's uh, uh, even my kids who are teenagers, what they consider comedy didn't even exist when I was right. a teenager. Like the YouTube stars, the TikTok version of comedy where it's little short videos, Right. all of that is, you know, fresh and new, um, uh, paying attention to what they were um, referencing so that I can incorporate it into my set because I am not the same age as most of the comedians. Most of the comedians are in their 20s and I am twice their age. And so Um, talk about that in terms of your content because this this podcast is for women 40 plus and you are talking to us. You're not talking to 20 year olds. And where do you get your content and how do you know if it's working? Do you have a bunch of girlfriends that you run it by or how do you know? I, the way I know it's, so it's interesting. The being older 
at first I hid my age because I didn't know, you know, I didn't want to be an outcast. I wanted to be somewhat uh, assimilated, but a lot of the other comedians are making jokes about dating and dating apps and, you know, first jobs and stuff like that. And I'm like, there were no dating apps when I was in my 20s, you know, Um, and I've never used a dating app. And quite frankly, there's enough people making jokes about that. So my jokes would be, um, you know, about parenting, about marriage, about uh, keeping up your appearance, a little bit about aging. You know, I got comfortable to the point where I could um, uh, express more of my true authentic self. So I think it helped me that I was talking about things that not a lot of other people in the comedy scene down here were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped me get noticed. Um, I'm not just another Tinder date joke writer, you know, I'm talking about taxes and Botox and parenting and uh, things that other comics aren't talking about. And I found it empowering and it was a differentiator. um, But I did notice that in some venues, there's some venues that have a majority college aged audience. Mm. And some of my material was not resonating with them at all. And that's when I noticed I need to pay more attention to what my teenage kids are doing so I can maybe incorporate more of that so that I can reach that audience. Some comics, they just say, these are my people, these are not my people. If people don't find me funny, I don't care. I Uh wanna be the type of comic who can push in the clutch and change gears and Mm -hmm. be able to reach anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanna be able to reach the young, you know, the 20 somethings. I wanna be able to reach a more mature audience. I actually had a, a, uh, I performed somewhere that had a tiny, tiny audience. I was late in the lineup, so a lot of people left, and the remaining audience were fundamentalist Christians. And at oh the my time, God. my set oh my was talking about Ivanka Trump and basically ripping on her. Oh my and goodness! And they did not enjoy it at all, and I actually felt really bad. Uh, and I oh thought wow. to myself okay, I need to make some content that can resonate with fundamental Christians, you know? Okay. I want to be able to pull out something that I can make an enjoyable experience for pretty much anybody. Um, So that's, you know, that's my focus. Every time I encounter a set that doesn't go well, I review the recording and I ask myself, is it that I could have performed better or was it just not the right content for this audience? And I'm still learning how to read an audience and creating more content that would appeal to uh, different types of people. And, you know, so I'm never do done. You get, do you get up and then look out at the audience and say, hmm, this is this set I should use or that set? I mean, is it, or do you know going in what, what set of jokes you're gonna use? I mean, because I would think the terrifying thing would be you think you've figured out the audience and no one's laughing. Then what do you do? Yeah. So at the very beginning, I had so 
I had maybe six minutes of jokes in total. So oh. whether they were or weren't my audience, you I was just going to go get up there and give it to them. <laughs> you okay. Okay. Um, at this point, I probably have 30 minutes of material, of good, wow. solid material. Not all of it is, it, it's a challenge to thread all 30 minutes together in one set because right. You know, I've got some parenting stuff. I've got some cocaine jokes. I've got some, yes. You know, um, it can be done, but uh -huh. um, you, I just have to really think about how I'm going to make that transition. Um, it's very helpful if I if I'm performing at a place where I've done before. Yeah. So I get a sense of who's most likely to be there, yeah. or if I know someone who's performed there. Um, like Kermit's mother-in-law lounge, it's um, it's not college kids there generally. No. It's uh, um, people, I would say 30 plus, 40 plus. Um, so that was helpful to know. Um, a place that has college kids, I won't not do some of my uh, more mature stuff for them, but I will um, embed it in more youthful oriented content. Um, but the whole sequencing and uh, determining what you're gonna say, it's all part of the, uh, it's part of the work. And right. I find it, I find it like a mental puzzle that I really enjoy. Like mm. I enjoy crossword puzzles, I enjoy mm -hmm. word games, mm -hmm. and this is just a new dimension to put on top of it. So if I go to a place, Basically, you walk in and you can see who's there and you can see, oh, my God, they're all teenagers. OK, so I was going to do political stuff, but now I think I'm going to do some Harry Styles jokes. And okay. so maybe I'll do some Harry Styles jokes. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. If it works, I'm like, OK, these are like pop culture, you know, fun kids. So I'll stay in that vein. If they're not really getting that, then I'll try something a little more esoteric, a little scientific, a little political. Because sometimes you get, you know, young fogies who right. are my favorite right. young people. Young fogies, I love They that. are my favorite people. That's um, hilarious. Um, I, one of the first, when I was still starting, I mean, I am still starting. I actually had my one year anniversary last week. Oh, fabulous. Yep. That's great. Well, I'm going to use that to pivot to our end because we're actually at the end here. But can you tell us what, um, are there one or two secrets you might share with us to women? I believe it or not, you're not the first person, a friend I went to high school with who was a Greenwich mom. She was the quietest person in the class, never heard a peep out of her, very tall, kind of hid in the background became a comic later in life. Like she got divorced and became this, I mean, I was, now she works with the moth, but what are the tips and, you know, like two tips you would give a friend like me to like, if you want to transition into this, what are the two non-obvious do's and don'ts? So what I can just talk about my experience, my experience is do your reconnaissance. So if you if you want to get into a certain uh, scene in a certain city, follow them on social media and just watch what's happening. You know, like where are they happening? Who is hosting? You know, figure out, um, do your background research, 
and then just do it. Just jump in. Like I, I regret that I didn't do this sooner in my life. Um, but on the other hand, I don't know that I would have the perspective that I have now. You know, I've right. been working for over in a professional capacity right. for over 20 years. I'm right. married. I have kids. I've been through some stuff. You have um, material. Yeah, I have I have material and experiences that resonate with, I would say, a broader cross-section than what the 20-year-old me would be able right. to talk about. Um, so I would say just jump in. Any of the uh, things that you think would be inhibiting, like I'm not good enough or I'm too old or I don't know what I'm doing, here's a uh, spoiler alert. Nobody knows what they're doing. And quite frankly, that's what makes it fun. And if you don't know what you're doing, you might actually invent something new. Love that. And that's where the magic happens. If Love you're that. following a formula from someone else, you're only going to be as good as they've gotten. If you're doing something totally new that works for you or that you're figuring out, you might invent a whole new genre. And that's how you get successful. And I'm not saying I'm doing that, but that's what I found. That's what it, that's where I see things awesome. from my perspective. So yeah. let's, let's talk, where can people find you? And do you have any recordings that they can listen to? Cause you're damn fun, funny. Thank and you. I want them to be able to find you. So I do perform uh, pretty regularly in New Orleans at the comedy club called Comedy House New Orleans. If you Google Comedy House New Orleans, you'll find them. Um, I'm also on Instagram. My Instagram name is Jennifer underscore Turbo. That's J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R underscore T-U-R-B-O. I have, uh, I have some videos of uh, pieces of my set up there. Um, I, should, I should put some new stuff there. Um, it's interesting. I tend to upload jokes that have a short shelf life. So jokes about the election are up there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to ruin a punchline if someone's coming to see me at a club and they're like, I oh see. man, I heard this. I heard this on Instagram. I see, um, I see. But I'm retiring some you know, timely material. So I should, I should post it. Well, awesome. That's fantastic, Jennifer. And if they're in New Orleans, they can come see you live, but I definitely think they should check you out and listen to some of your stuff and be inspired. I love uh, what you said about, you know, no one knows what they're doing. And that was exactly what I found out about being an entrepreneur is when you really talk to everybody else you think has got it figured out. They all pull you aside. They go, I don't know what I'm doing either. So it truly is that. And I love the I love the optimism of don't follow somebody else because you may actually invent something new that way. I love it. Yep. Yep. And at at and it, at a certain age, um, you know, of the audience of your podcast, you've got to trust your instincts. You've been through a lot. You've seen a lot you know what's going to, you know, what could potentially work, you know, trust your gut and be brave and just do it. Awesome. So thank you so much, Jen. As always, I'm so glad we had time to talk. You're just, you're just such a great inspiration and you're going to, there are going to be some people out there. You're going to inspire to, to move out of that boring thing they're doing and try something new, especially comedy. 
I hope so, Leslie. And again, if they reach out, they can DM me on Instagram and I'm happy to help. So sweet. You're a darling. Thanks. So I hope you enjoyed listening to Jennifer. She's simply an inspiration and it really is true. You can do anything you want. It doesn't matter how old you are. You just have to start doing it. And I hope this was inspirational for you. I hope that you will subscribe to the podcast and share it with friends who need to reinvent. And I also hope that if you're serious about reinvention, you'll wander over to coveyclub.com and pull down all our reinvention materials, all our inspirational stories. I even have a wonderful list of 31 badass reinvention ideas for you, which you can find on the site. And I hope that you will join the club because we have pods that we do that focus on reinvention where we set you up with women who are just, it's about three to seven people in a pod. And we do reinvention for career. We do other types of reinvention um, and you can work in small groups to make your dreams come true. As I say always, I can't tell you what your reinvention should be, but Covey Club is a place where we can hold a space for you while you figure it out. So we'd love to do that for you. Anyway, come join us over at Covey Club and we will see you next time.